0: welcome to the hell project podcast this is where i share all of the results of the research and reading that i've done on the doctrine of hell over the last few years Uh, i defend the view that uh, without jesus we are all dead Uh, this is the view called conditionalism and i believe there's better news in it than the traditional understanding of hell and i try to defend that here the audio quality may not be that high as it's taken off my YouTube channel, and unfortunately, some of the streams do have technical glitches. But I hope that you stick with it and uh, do let me know what you think. Share, uh, get involved through Twitter, or even comment on my YouTube channel. I look forward to hearing back from you. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Hell Project. This is where I talk about all things hell, defending the position that the Bible teaches conditionalism, or you might have heard the word annihilationism, the idea that after judgment, the wicked or those who continue to rebel against God will be destroyed. And by destroyed, I mean they will no longer be around to experience the life that is on offer through Jesus. And So our immortality is conditional on faith in Christ and that's the position that I hold uh, and I defend on this channel. What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be talking to Michael Pierce who has a, a YouTube channel called Michael New Zealand I believe it is and he's done some work on defending the view of conditionalism as well and he's done a short video called 10 reasons why people won't burn in hell forever. So I'm going to hand over to uh, him to introduce himself and uh, how he came to believe in Jesus and then we'll talk about condition- his journey to conditionalism and then we'll uh, go through these 10 reasons why people won't burn in hell forever. So Michael, thank you for joining me today and uh, welcome to the Hell Project.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. And, uh, so. Awesome. Could you tell us a bit about your journey to faith and uh, how you became a Christian before we go into the the story of uh, your journey to conditionalism?
1: Yep, sure. So I grew up with a, in a family. My mother was a Christian from about the time I was five and my father wasn't. I went to church when I was young till I was about 15 when my dad died. Uh, for about nine years, I didn't go to church. I walked away from the Lord. Uh, and when I was about 24, a, a um, Korean missionary in Wellington, New Zealand, where I live, came and shared the gospel with me outside the library at the um, university here, Victoria University of Wellington. I went along to Bible study, gave my life to the Lord. That was back in 1997. Um, and it was it was a tough time, but it was the best time of my life. And you know, in terms of really understanding who Jesus was and committing to him and following him. So that was what twenty uh twenty-three years ago, is it? Twenty-three years ago, now? yeah. And so that's uh that's basically how I became a Christian. I was pretty open to the Bible and to, to God's word and when I was showed that I was a sinner and that I needed a savior, it seemed it seemed true to me. It was just a matter of me deciding whether I was going to accept that and follow him. You know, follow the Lord. Which I did eventually. So how, how much of your
0: understanding of what it meant to be a sinner, how much did the judgment aspect come into play in, in your conversion?
1: I don't know if it did or not. I mean, it was more of a kind of an internal conviction. And I don't have a really good recollection of all the details. It's been mm. so long ago. Yeah, um, But far I ahead. did have that conviction as the Word of God, whatever, you know, opened up. And the, and the guy that was leading me to the Lord... Or they led me to the Lord He was showing me a lot of scriptures and they just spoke to my heart that I needed a savior, that somehow I was wrong with God. Whatever that meant, I needed to get right. Jesus was the way. He's the son of God. He died for my sins and I needed him. So um, through that, yeah, I guess I just I I followed him and haven't looked back um, through the ups and downs of the Christian walk as you do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it is ups and downs, so I'm sure you've got quite a few stories in there as well. So you, you became a Christian 20-odd sort of years ago, and uh, through that time, did you understand hell to be ongoing eternal torment, or what was your understanding of hell at that point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean... Pretty pretty much. I didn't think too deeply about it. I kind of, you know, you hear you hear that's the popular conception. So that's that's all I heard. I didn't know there was an alternative. I, I I recall actually seeing something, kind of an article. I think it was on sort of false teachings, and I remember the word annihilationism came up as a kind of a false teaching. I didn't even know what that was. I just just a list of things that came up on a, on a document that I remember being given as an as a young Christian. Um, And so that was my only exposure to something alternative other than the traditional view. I never looked into it, but it kind of was always at the back of my mind, and not anything I could embrace or really talk about. And I think a lot of Christians are like that. They they get taught that hell is a place where you're going to burn forever, and you know you're going to be punished. And there's different kind of aspects of what that might look like, but not many people want to talk about it, not many people preach on it, not many people embrace it fully, I don't think, except for the people that you sort of think, man, those guys are seriously flawed Christians. If they're, you know, the fundamentalists that burn in hell, kind of hellfire and brimstone guys. So I just had it at the back of my mind. That was my conception, but I never spent much time thinking about it. It didn't seem relevant to my personal faith, and it didn't seem consistent with the God of love that I experienced in my Christian life. Mm
0: yeah I think I think that's something that started with me was that it was it was something that I recognized as part of the traditional Christian belief that to question it would be fairly heretical I mean that was one of my first pushbacks to well, my mate who, who was like so what does perish mean in John 316 and and I, I was very much along yep. the lines of, I mean I saw his book rethink the book rethinking hell uh, which is edited by Chris date and um, has a whole load of essays. On on the view from John Stott to Ralph uh, Bowles and a, a few others, uh, big names who've who've come to this view, and I was like, "Oh, are you yeah. are you becoming a heretic?" And it was very much my, it was a joke, and it was a mate, and we had a good discussion about it. But that was very much the idea of what what happened. If you start thinking differently about the version of hell that all those big teachers professed, then suddenly you're you must be a heretic. Um, yeah. Yep. So, so you you first came across it, and it was under the list of heresies. What made you start to look into it? Um, what was your your journey? How long did that take to to start realizing? It's uh, okay, not so heretical? probably
1: about yeah, probably about two to three years ago. I kind of I knew that there was more to hell than I than I had realized. I knew there were several words underlying that word, and in, in the Greek and the Hebrew. And I hadn't looked into it, um, so I thought it's about time I looked into it. And just reading through the Bible, regular Bible reading, I, I, it's like you read through the Old Testament, you don't see anything resembling eternal torment. You come maybe to Isaiah 66, and you go, okay, well, they will, you know, the the worms um, will not die, and the what is it, the fire will not be quenched. Okay, well, maybe that's yeah. it. That's where you get it from. And then you go through the New Testament. I didn't see it until I got to Revelation 14 again, and then I thought, okay, well, that must be it. But everywhere else it seemed to say something different. So I just had a sort of a question and as I was going through the Bible. I think the Lord just highlighted the fact that the Bible's talking about death and destruction and perishing all the way through. There's a couple of verses that seem to contradict that, which must be where we get this idea of eternal torment, but it didn't satisfy me. It's like surely all those other verses can't all be that superficially wrong that they say something that seems totally different. So I just sort of started questioning, looking on YouTube. Found Edward Fudge and his sort of work and saw the movie that he, he was about his life and uh looked at a few teachers online. I, th- I found Rethinking How the, the group Rethinking How I found um Greg Boyd did a sermon series on or a sermon on on the topic and asked so many good questions. And there were there were other videos as well that I saw and just just were looking at the words in the Bible myself and coming to the conclusion that um and even when I asked that question about it, I remember about a year and a half ago, I was still asking that question, or maybe two years ago, talked to a friend about it. And when I raised that issue, he got so mad with me, it was it was almost um, persecution. It was so bad. Subsequently, we had a conversation once I became a conditionalist, and he, in one conversation, I remember really just laying it, laying it on me and saying, stop teaching heresy about six times in the conversation. And I said, well, it's it's biblical, so I sent some sort of a document defending it, which to which I've never got an answer, a satisfactory answer from anyone that I've presented it to, to rebut the clear scriptural teaching that people will die, that they'll perish. Mm-hmm. Um, so that once I sort of started on that journey, it became very clear quite quickly, and I didn't worry too much about what was considered heresy once I found out this was coming largely from the medieval Catholic Church, which, as an evangelical Christian, I don't have any uh, sort of Need to sort of revere to it all, I don't sort of re- feel the need to go back and say, well, that's tradition or orthodoxy that to me is not not a biblical thing I mean Paul said I was zealous for the tradition of my elders um, and he was persecuting Christians so I think as conditionalists we may suffer persecution but I mean Paul said sort of the same thing uh the, the scripture is what we go by as Christians I always thought you know um, and I was so surprised when I get Protestant evangelical Christians born again Christians who push back. And they never can defend it from Scripture, as far as I can see. It's always from orthodoxy, tradition. It's heretical. That's not what our church teaches. That to me is not a good enough reason to 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 say eternal torment's true and this is false.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. I I think there's a a large proportion of pushback from those who try. They do try to use Scripture, but oftentimes I find it's single verses. It's reading their cultural culture and tradition into those verses so for example you're you pointed out isaiah 66 24 um yeah. and you've got te- biblical teachers well-renowned biblical teachers looking at that verse so you uh, i don't know if you've read it the four views of hell uh, that's edited by preston sprinkle it's the second edition and you've got um this teacher danny burke who who reads into isaiah 66 24 and daniel 12 2 that there's some ongoing consciousness yet isaiah 66 24 clearly talks about the corpses and in no world that yeah. i know of <laughs> do corpses exist yeah. unless you're talking about the walking dead and some sort of zombie flip which is clearly not what isaiah had in mind uh when he no. was writing no. isaiah So I find that people have tried to defend their view, biblically speaking, but they tear the verses so far out of context that they don't actually mean what the verse means in context. And that may not be overly fair. And there are tough passages like Revelation 20 and 14, as you say. But as we discuss these 10 reasons that you've uh, shared, I I think it does become very clear that... um, it, it's the the biblical the biblical presentation is is a little bit more um towards destruction and and that sort of thing which i, I don't want to jump in too many on these reasons before we actually get there so yeah how, yeah. how long would you say you've been a conditionalist then so if you're christian is 20 odd years
1: pro- probably two years around okay two
0: years okay so it's not not too far off
1: me then really. N- not too yeah maybe maybe even a year and a half okay um and, and when... But I'm a very staunch, staunch conditionalist, whereas before I was an ignorant uh, traditionalist.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And I'm, not
1: very staunch. Uh,
0: it. That's kind of what's happened to me. Was uh, before it was, I'd probably talk about banishment as hell, uh, and the exclusion, self-exclusion, the sort of C.S. Lewis yep. type um, idea that we we do it to ourselves, and yeah. that never fully sit sat comfortably with me. But it was, I found comfort in my uh reliance on good teachers like tim keller and and so on who, who sort of pr- promote that view um but yeah. yeah going into scripture is very different so my, my journey is probably sort of in i'd say i, I was on the fence for maybe a, a year year and a half while engaging with the rethinking hell book and the rethinking hell group and then just something clicked and so i've been doing this channel for about a year and then yeah condition is probably about three years i i did a theology and leadership training course uncredited but it was two years long and my first essay was for that and that really nailed (laughs) what i i see and went from genesis to revelation covering all the major verses and just i can't i can't unsee conditionalism now whenever i read through the Bible. yeah that's right so um yeah um just before we move on michael there's a, a question that usually comes up around this conversation uh morning london theist uh is are you a dualist or a physicalist have you explored that or are you uh agnostic on that
1: i'm agnostic i only started exploring it when i think i heard you talking about it with uh or i've heard a couple of people jim cordero's and one on rethinking mm. how another you talked to uh was it um joseph dear and uh I think one of you was a you're a tentative dualist, and he's a tentative physicalist. Yeah, that's right. And it, it doesn't interest me that much, um, and I don't know. I haven't looked into it deeply. Uh, I would have probably pr- probably heard about more dualism. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm I'm agnostic on that at the moment. Um, I yeah. don't feel like a burning passion. Yeah. To uh, to sort of to, to be clear, and that's one of the things like with this was conditionalism, I feel it's so clear. Um, it's as clear to me pretty much. It's not as important as the deity of Christ, but it's as clear as that in mm-hmm. my mind Um yeah. Whereas other things like dualism physicalism Or the timing of the rapture or the nature of the rapture. I, I just don't yeah. don't see that as, as very clear So I can understand those are hard topics. This one doesn't seem a hard topic to me to be honest. Um Yeah, you mentioned in a couple of verses like revelation that maybe a couple of hard verses But when you got two unclear witnesses out of like 400 that are <laughs> so and ninety-eight true. of them are very clear. Yeah you you, you know if you went to a court of law you had 398 clear witnesses said Michael Pierce committed the crime and we saw it two of them said well I didn't have my glasses on but I think it might have been you know Fred Smith I'm not sure you would go with the 398 clear witnesses so that to me is it's pretty clear I mean even like with the the deity of Christ you could you could you could argue that Jesus is not God based on a couple of twisted scriptures but I think there's so many hundreds of them that are very clear it's it's, so to
2: me
0: it's as clear as that yeah no I, I i'd agree so well without too much further ado then we'll um we'll go through these because i'm sure we'll talk around the houses a little bit with uh, the 10 reasons so your your first reason yeah. uh, do you want to introduce them and then we'll we'll talk a bit about it and um just go from yeah. there so what's, what's um, the first reason
1: so just go through one at a time
0: uh well if you just start with number one uh, explain what yep. just explain what you mean by it and and I'll jump in and then we'll move on as we go okay
1: yeah so the the first reason one of the things I've started when I started exploring was I saw the word hell in the bible but I've, I look at the King James version I look at the NIV and I see the King James has the word hell a lot more than the NIV and I'd heard well they've watered it down in the NIV I thought well what's the original words in Greek and Hebrew so I went back and looked at the words I found some words like Sheol in the Old Testament, which occurred 65 times. I found Hades, Gehenna, and I found Tartarus. So those are the words translated hell. None of, them are, none of them are rightly translated hell, in my opinion. And I think any anyone who's has any um, good translational sort of approach would agree. You shouldn't translate any of those words hell. So the word hell shouldn't actually appear in the Bible, which then gives people the impression that this concept that's Universally almost known of burning in hell, sort of comes. While well, the word hell is in the Bible, we know that it means burning forever. Therefore, that's what Jesus was talking about. Once you find that the word hell wasn't in the Bible, you realize that something else is going on there. He's talking about something else. Like for example, destruction in Gehenna, not burning forever in hell. So the word hell should not be in the Bible. Is my my um, my feeling.
0: I think that's really important. And that's the first place that I've started um, on. When I, when I teach other people, when I am asked to present on what hell is, which has happened a couple of times now, and fortunately both of them been filmed, can be found on, on my channel. But I think that's one of the most vital points of the discussion, is looking at those words, and hell would probably be the best word for Hades if we're going to if we're going to use the word hell in the sense that it is meant for the. So it comes from the idea of the realm of the dead. It comes from uncovering or burying. Apparently, there's a phrase to hell potatoes. I don't know if you didn't... Uh, that's what no. I found out in my exploration of the word. Um, yep. Is to, to be buried, to to be underground. And so hell definitely would work there. But our cultural... The cultural weight of the word hell brings in yeah. so much nonsense, so much like Dante's Inferno, I even had someone on my channel try and defend the position from Dante's Inferno saying it was a right view. And I, I kind of left the conversation from that point because there's not really much point going further. But uh, yeah. when, when a Christian yeah. starts using Dante to defend hell, you've, you've got a bit of a problem. But they, um, yeah, I completely agree. Those four, four words really important to look at. And when you really unpick them, so when you separate Gehenna out from Hades, you start to see two completely different pictures. Um, I, I find I no, found that no. fascinating. If people want to take that further, they can. I've got um, Gehenna and Hades have been explored on my channel uh, in depth. The only one I haven't touched on, and I don't know if you've got an opinion yet on it, is
1: Tartarus or Tartaru Yeah, well, yeah, ta- yeah, ta- yeah. So I think it's Second Peter two four. Mm. It only occurs once, and it's talking about the, the angels that sin. So it's nothing to do with humans anyway. So, but to me, that might be one we could call hell. I don't know. Yeah. I mean. The thing with Sheol and Hades, obviously Hades being the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sheol, is that even the King James doesn't translate Sheol all the time into hell. Only less than half of the time. It translates it's really inconsistent, one word. isn't it? It's is so inconsistent to translate a word 31 times as hell, 31 times as grave, and three, or three times as pit. It's like, and the reason I think primarily is because good people are going there. So it's like, well, if bad people go there, we'll call it hell. And if Mm-mm. good people are going there, we'll call it something else. That's, yep. You wouldn't call a city OK, if, if a good person visits Wellington, we'll call it Wellington. And if a bad person goes there, we'll call it London or something. You know, it's like it's the same place regardless. Yeah. yeah absolutely. So totally, totally. yeah. So the, the words should just be transliterated or you know put into what we can understand. Then you haven't got that baggage of the social or the traditional imagery that comes along with the word mm-hmm. that just totally distorts people's reasoning. And it's like, well, it's very clear the word hell is in the Bible. And we know how means this once you take that away. And it's going, well, let's start from what the Bible actually says, yes. which is always a good place to start.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sticking with what the, the Bible says is, is what we try to do here. So we've got those four, uh, well, yeah, four words. I mean, Hades and Sheol being the same same place. And I, I yeah. think that's the quickest way to diffuse the situation when someone brings up Luke 16. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you've got the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if people aren't aware of which parable i'm talking about in luke 16 and uh suddenly you recognize well this is before judgment it's before resurrection so therefore yep. it's in hades as it says it's about uh, death that we're not and it's talking, a parable it's a parable we're not a, talking about eternal torment
1: it's a hundred percent a parable yeah <laughs> <laughs> which, I, <laughs> which, I rap, which i wasn't which i wasn't clear on all right okay yeah i wasn't i wasn't clear on that until I looked into it. It's definitely a parable. It's in the middle of Luke. You've got a whole bunch of parables in the middle of Luke. It follows another parable at the beginning of Luke 16, which starts off with the exact same five words. Mm. There was a rich man. The parable of the shrewd manager. And then you get on to the next parable, and Jesus said, there was a rich man. And people say, well, it's not a parable now. It's like, whenever you hear the words, once upon a time, there was Cinderella and a prince. Okay, that's a fairy tale. If I said it, once upon a time, there was a, you know, it's a fairy tale again.
2: Yep, yep.
1: It's 100% a parable, as you said, to do with Hades, not final judgment at all.
0: Absolutely. Uh, so we've got those four words. That's uh, reason number one is the word hell is not in the Bible. So that's a solid reason to start. At least if you're starting in this conversation, if you're brand new to it, look up Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, and Tartarus. Tartarus is one that I've not done a video on just because it's once in the Bible. is only once in there. It's in Second Peter and there's this progression in second Peter talking about the chains, chained angels and then it goes through the different almost times of destruction where it's been destruction from yep. uh, the flood. So it goes the angels, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah and these are examples of what will happen to the ungodly. It, it seems like it's pointing out all these times that a total destruction is what will happen to the <laughs> ungodly. Uh, and in context, I think that passage is one of the strongest for conditionalism. There's, there's several that are very strong for conditionalism, but I think because it says it is an un- example, it makes sense that That's what an example is. (laughs) So, uh,
1: Yeah, well, exactly. It's destruction all the way through there. You only see the word destruction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're in in Tartarus awaiting destruction. The whole world will be destroyed. All sinners will be destroyed. The angels will be destroyed. I mean, it's pretty clear. God's going to destroy everything he doesn't like. (laughs) Yep, everything that shouldn't be. second Second Peter, the whole theme is destruction. Absolutely, which
0: takes us quite neatly into the second point uh, that you made in your video. Uh, if you want to introduce that one
1: yeah so so the language of scripture is predominantly of death destruction and perishing i mean those words are chosen quite carefully and if you look at the underlying words they're all accurate um death or die perish destroy it's from genesis onward um, so that's the predominant language of scripture you do get other verses talking about things like consuming fire and and stuff like that but even consuming to consume would be to destroy something in fire. So, I mean, the language of Scripture is is not quite universally of death, destruction, and perishing. But every other verse that's not of that, you can reconcile with that if you understand what it actually means. Um, Like most people would know, John 3.16 talks about perishing, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible. And And having looked at that verse in depth, it's a very accurate verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that's the contrast, by the way, right through scripture is of life and death. It's not heaven and hell, which is another misconception related to this. But the language of scripture is of death for the wicked. It's life or eternal life for the righteous. Jesus came to give us life. He didn't come to give us, uh, you know, like to take us to heaven. He came to give us life, eternal life. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So death, is, yeah, the language of scripture, not, not hell.
0: Mm, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I've found both of those, John 3.16 and Romans 6.23. You look at the surrounding context of those verses and it just makes the case even more clear. So with John 3, yeah. you've, we've looked at it on this channel with Darren Clark from Rethinking Hell. The whole gospel of John is conditionalism. But with John 3, you've got the example of uh, the Moses lifting up the staff to save people from death. That's the example given leading up to John 3.16. The the yep. examples continually throughout the Old Testament are ju- judgment is death. And uh, so with the language of death, the, the com- most common pushback uh, for looking at death is that, well, Genesis 2.17 says that in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will die. And then they didn't die immediately. Therefore, it must have been some spiritual death. Have you worked through how you respond to that yet?
1: Not, not. I mean, I, I don't know the ins and outs. What I've heard for their verses is it's probably better rendered in dying, you shall die. As another rendering. Mm-hmm. But regardless, the word die, we know what that means. And we know Adam died. So if the punishment of something is death, whether you die on the day or you know like if if I was sentenced for murder and they said the punishment's death and it takes a 16 years in prison while they are waiting to put me to death, the punishment's still death whether it happened on the day or not. It's it's to me it's it's um you don't really need to resolve how come you didn't die on that exact day. Yeah, yeah. And... He died and that was the punishment. There is no eternal tormenting at all.
0: No, no. There's you still have to read torment and. Even you have to read the soul into that as a tentative dualist. You still have to read uh, into that e- spiritual death. And, and what makes that mess is you have to then clarify. Every time you see the word death throughout the Bible, if you have to clarify whether it's either physical or spiritual, and many people do, yeah. it makes a mess of the plain reading. We know death is comes is something coming to the end of its life (laughs) it no longer functions it no longer experiences uh yeah what it should and uh or what it was made to in in that sense so on my my comeback for for genesis 217 is looking at genesis 3 so we've got the curse in genesis 217 or the warning is genesis 217 but the actual curse is genesis 3 and you've got what what death looks like is the ultimate return to dust dust yep. dust doesn't experience torment dust doesn't uh, live on forever if if that is no. that is the curse that our end is death which is also from romans 6 then uh, that
1: that means what it means
0: <laughs> we don't have to go into too much uh, yeah that's yeah, right that's right try and wrestle around i way. I
1: think the traditionalist has to think really deeply to try to dig out another meaning for the word death it's just to defend it you know to defend something it's like they'll they'll take literally verses in revelation for example the most symbolic book of the New Testament mm-hmm. and they will redefine the literal passages of scripture like the book of Romans or every other book pretty much in the old testament you know um it's it's almost unbelievable the the twisting of scripture that has to go on. I mean, you can take revelation symbolic because it tells you in the first chapter, it's a book of symbols. I mean, so that's okay. But when you take a literal word in every place that it occurs right through the Bible, that literally means one thing. When you, whenever you see it, death is pictured as death. And then you, But if it's a judgment at the final day, then it means something else. That would be completely inconsistent. I mean, that's right, yeah. God would have to be quite confused and a God of total confusion to, to sort of mix his language like that. It's just yeah. unbelievable.
0: Yeah, yeah, completely agree. So the the language is strong. I, I think the the Bible can, I mean, yeah, as you say, there's destruction, perish, death, ash, dust, consume. Yep. The I think uh, there's there's someone called Reese Watt who's got um, a god dot org, I think it is, and he's written an article that basically says the New Testament authors, if if eternal torment is as solid a doctrine as most or the majority of evangelicals said is, then the New Testament authors were rubbish at using words. <laughs> they just don't Absolutely. have the language of eternal torment uh, in any of them. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah.
1: Uh, Paul, can't Paul should it. rewrite Romans, I think. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, definitely. And Acts should be...
1: I re- mean, he did a really bad job of just using the words death and life all the time. <laughs> I, mean, I think he should have just, you know, used... But a bit more clear language.
0: Yeah, uh, totally. Uh,
1: I mean, because he he wasn't very smart, and he didn't write much of the Bible. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah, and he he didn't talk about eternal, ongoing, conscious torment at all. And and the thing yeah. is, those those that not, language not once. Yeah, that language could well have been used that they would have experienced, because we see in the intertestamental period there are there is language of eternal torment in. So that's where Catholics, I think, have to wrestle a little bit more because they hold the the intertestamental stuff is as part of the oh, canon okay, right. so you got oh, it, yeah in judith the book of judith you've got um it rephrases isaiah to sound like they will be regenerated to experience more torment so the new testament okay. authors had that language at hand if they wanted to use it um i haven't right, right, I haven't yet right. spoken to a, a catholic as to uh, i know there's a couple catholics that are leaning towards annihilationism but i don't know how those guys handle that verse at this point in time um, but that's something that yeah we, we don't really have to to wrestle yeah, with i've too. only got
1: 66 books in my bible so. <laughs> yeah
0: that's it but even, <laughs> even if that is something that's uh, authoritative it doesn't necessarily overwrite other books of the bible and i think it, there are ways of managing right. that um,
1: yeah. but i don't need well that. if you've got one instance amongst again another one instance amongst 400 it's yeah. like um well yeah absolutely. you could either just say as we do it's not it's not canon so we don't take it as authoritative yeah. or if you did take it as authoritative you'd say well, well let's subject that to the very clear other 390 whatever verses yeah yeah <laughs> and absolutely. let's just put that one as a question mark shall <laughs> that's yeah. it yeah that, that can
0: it, be in the middle know? ground um, and I, I i agree with that and I, I think it's not something that we need to harmonize it's just something that we can be aware of that, that is no, what was happening no. in the new test uh, intertestamental period being such uh, a broad range of views happening it wasn't as clear cut that it was eternal torment in that, in that middle time um so carrying on then uh the your point 3 what, um, was humans are mortal why is that important
1: yeah okay just just want to touch on the last you mentioned about harmonizing scripture well oh, yeah go for it One of the things with harmonizing harmonizing scripture, when you've got many, many, many clear verses that are literal and you've got a very few number of possibly unclear verses that are symbolic, I would suggest the precedent would be for the many, many clear verses that are literal. And we as conditioners, we know we can harmonize those verses in Revelation. And when it comes up, there's a few other maybe difficult verses, maybe in Matthew or whatever, but we can actually harmonize all the verses and we don't need to sort of change any verses except interpret the symbolic verses um, or not interpret the symbolic verses literally, which is consistent with how you take symbolism. I mean, we would never think Jesus is literally a lamb of God. He's not really a lamb. He doesn't make a baha sound every time he sort of talks. He's called a shepherd. He's not literally a shepherd. He was a carpenter. He was a man. He's God. We don't take those as literal references. So in the book of Revelation, you've only got a few verses that you've got to harmonize with the literal verses of scripture. So the many clear Literal verses take precedent over the very few um, maybe ambiguous symbolic verses. And if you added that verse from the, the apocryphal books or whatever, um, that would be in the same category. It doesn't carry much weight when you've got so many clear verses. So that's that's just to finish off that one. So um, And on the, the next one, humans are mortal. I was always taught, and I actually heard this in an in evangelistic um, video I was watching today, that you're going to spend eternity somewhere. Humans are immortal. However, when I went to the Bible, I couldn't find that. I found humans are mortal. So again, the Bible seems to be very clear, given that there's no verse that I found that humans are immortal. The soul is mortal. The soul that sins shall die. Humans are mortal. It's right through Scripture. Um, very clear, in my, my opinion, unless you take Greek philosophy into account and you want to go with Socrates and Plato, that's fine, but it's not biblical. So, you choose between the biblical mortal soul or mortal human and the immortal con- soul concept of, of Greek philosophy, which sort of gets morphed into sort of Christian doctrine to justify eternal torment, that people have to spend eternity somewhere. They, they don't because the Bible doesn't say we're mortal. Uh, immortal. Sorry, it says we're mortal. So you don't have to spend eternity somewhere unless you've got eternal life. And then we know where we'll spend it with with Jesus forever. Amen.
0: So, so it seems to me pretty clear With that ir- immortality aspect What are your go-to verses then To you, You're saying that the Bible And I agree with you But you're saying that the Bible yes. Is clearly against uh, humans being Definitely immortal uh, What are your go-to yep. verses To, to recognise that
1: I can't remember all of them Off the top of my head But there's one in Romans 2.17 Um let's see if I can flick I wrote it down One of the things I've done, I've got a video on YouTube, on my YouTube channel that I went through. What I did was go through the book of Romans because it's kind of the definitive book in the New Testament of Christian doctrine. Go through the entire book and see what it says on the whole topic of mortality, immortality, life, death and hell. It doesn't say anything about hell. Doesn't say anything about eternal torment at all. But it does say in Romans 2.17, for example. um, Is it 2.17? Uh, maybe I wrote down the wrong verse. Maybe it's three seventeen. Maybe it's one. Sorry. Uh, uh, that's all
0: right. I'm just finding it now myself. See, uh, do a little bit of Bible study.
1: <laughs> I think I wrote down the wrong verse. So it's it's um. It might be two verse seven. Is it? Yeah. Sorry, verse seven. To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. So there's the seeking of that immortality, and it's consistent with the verse that God has put eternity in the hearts of man, I guess, that we we want eternal life, we want immortality, but it's something we have to seek because we don't inherently have it. Yep. And that's pretty clear from the tree of life that when Adam was taken away from the tree of life, it's God said, we don't want him to live forever, lest he live, eat from the tree of life and live forever, have have immortality or whatever. And even then, it wasn't inherent, it was conditional on eating from the tree of life. You know, he he took him away from that. So If Adam died at 900 and whatever, and we're going to die when we're probably less than 120, I'd say, then um, it seems pretty clear. And there's there's other verses like 1 Corinthians 15, where it says we'll be clothed with immortality. The mortal will put on immortality. Corruption will put on incorruptible. Um, So it seems to talk about believers at the resurrection. When we get a new body, we'll put on that immortality. We'll put on a new body. If we had immortality now, we wouldn't need to put on something that we already have it wouldn't be logical.
2: Yeah. So I, I, you've got
1: I, to go against absolutely. logic against the scripture to, to believe in an immortal soul concept. Yeah. And if you realize that's from Greek philosophy and these are not born again, Christian authors, I mean, why you'd want to take them and their, their words as authoritative. I, I wouldn't know.
0: Yeah. I think, I think that's really important to, to highlight that the, the philosophy cannot be found in old Testament scriptures at all. The idea that the soul is no. ongoing uh, and immortal and yeah, Paul actively says that only God is immortal, and that's one Timothy that's right. uh, one one Timothy one sixteen something like that. I, mean,
2: I just no yeah, one Timothy on. six sixteen, yep. right.
0: I think it is. Yeah, there we go. So one Timothy six sixteen says, "Who alone, so the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see." And I, I find that an interesting point to. Not just that uh, the wicked humanity that rebels against God will be destroyed, but actually, God, if angels and spiritual beings and the devil have any form of immortality, it is only temporary in that God gives it to them. and He alone is the one that is immortal, truly immortal, uh and so i I've, i found that quite a convincing line of thought to actually say that there will be no place for evil there'll be no devil there there'll be no stain in the new creation that corrupts it and uh and that's for, for me that's a yeah. great hope the victory will be total
1: totally. totally yeah total
0: um so yeah i, I agree and, and that's the the whole thing behind conditional immortality so it's, it's Interesting to see you went to Romans. I mean, my go-to is very much uh, one Timothy, and and also highlighting Genesis three are the two points that I yep. go to. But yep. again, it's really important to point that out that yeah, we aren't innately immortal. Our soul isn't innately immortal. It might, as dualists, yep. the soul may well live temporarily outside of the body. That's not what it's made to do. But that storage place, Hades, is then destroyed in Revelation 20. Hades gives up the dead. And it, alongside those who aren't in the book of life, end up in the lake of fire, which we will come to in another point. So uh, moving on then to point number four. Jesus died for our sins. What have you got for that?
1: Well, that's pretty this is pretty simple. This is pretty simple logic, and people can get into the intricacies of how they define this, but Jesus died for our sins, he didn't suffer eternally. If we view Jesus as a substitute in any any particular way, like a you know the substitutionary atonement of Christ, he took our place, we deserve death as God pronounced on Adam. Jesus took it at the cross. He didn't suffer eternally. It wasn't even his suffering by being scourged or, you know, maybe the, the hours on the cross, it was his death. And the moment he died, he breathed his last It said it, the temple curtain was torn in two, symbolizing that man's access to God was restored. Jesus' death paid fully for our sins. Um, therefore, if and I've heard, um, you know, apologists say this, Jesus took the place of us. He his punishment was what we deserved. And it's good. Well, his punishment was death. And then they'll say, so if we die, we're going to go to hell and burn forever. Hang on. <laughs> If Jesus took our punishment, he would have. If it was for us to go to hell and burn forever, he would have to have gone to hell and burn forever. But if our punishment was death, then by dying, he actually did take our punishment. So we're actually taking the death. It actually magnifies and consistently, I guess, um, applies the death of Jesus. That he died in our place. We were Barabbas, if you like, the one that deserved to die. That you know, and Barabbas was let free. He didn't deserve it. Jesus was crucified. He died. I mean, there's no eternal suffering there. It's not even emphasized in Scripture the fact that he suffered. I mean, Mel Gibson may have emphasized that in his Passion movie, but
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah. it's not the fact of the this, this suffering as, so, as such, although that's horrific. It's the death. Yeah, He shed his blood. He died. He was an atonement. His life was given for our life. Uh, there's no eternal suffering there at all.
0: It's, it's huge. I mean, the, the standard discussion around this is uh when jesus took our punishment of an eternal torment you then have the philosophy argument that comes in which is while sin is infinite god is uh what is it so our sin against god is an infinite crime worthy of an infinite punishment have you come across that kickback yet
1: yeah but it's not scripture either because i mean <laughs> that would imply no no justice in the old testament was ever complete yeah Nobody ever suffered eternally in the Old Testament for their crimes. I mean, the justice system has a set penalty for crimes, which is never eternal punishment for any crime ever. So that whole idea I throw out the window, it doesn't make sense. But you've got to have to you've got to pull things like that out of the out of the out of your pocket to sort of justify this. It's it's unbelievable. It's like I heard R. C. Sproul saying that God's justice will never be satisfied with a sinner. They're going to burn forever because their sin is so great. Where did he get that from? There's no scriptural backing at all of great. You know, intellectual theologian teacher didn't quote any scriptures because there are none to back it up. So, I mean, it, it's a good thing when you've got the most intelligent people from the traditionalist camp who come out with these things and they can't back them up at all. Then you, you go, well, it's just an average Christian. I can already see you're not using any scriptures. It's not logical and it's not biblical. And that's the best arguments you've got mm-hmm. from the lay person. I don't get any good arguments at all except for maybe a couple of scriptures that they don't even know what they mean. So it's like, <laughs> it's so encouraging to hear these, you know, pull the rabbit out of the head. Okay, this is what it means. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: no, it's just not scriptural in, in my view.
0: Yeah, uh, and I, I agree. I think the atonement is probably the top. Out of, out of all these points, the atonement is one of the top for conditional immortality. It removes the need for these complex discussions. It, it, and that's not necessarily... Totally. Totally. The reason for going down a route is that it's no longer a complex argument, but it makes scripture, allows scripture to say what it's saying. It doesn't mean I need to add any idea of infinity, um, because infinity as a concept anyway, what does it mean for a sin to be infinite? Uh, I I, I used, used to teach at least secondary school maths. (laughs) <laughs> so, and I did computer science at degree level so I know a, a bit about infinities and I, and I know that when you apply them to concepts like sin that it doesn't quite make sense of the word infinity no. or no. sin um, so it, it, it is a philosophical argument that goes all the way back to church, through church tradition I think is Anselm maybe uh, I'm not sure if Augustine started it off but Anselm was definitely one yep. of the ones that used yep. it But yeah, it's trying to, it's a Christian who's heard a thought trying to harmonize this idea of eternal torment with Scripture rather than letting Scripture speak for itself. Um, Correct, yep, totally. Totally. That's the the biggest thing. When we see passages in Acts, you've killed the author of life. Well, that was was the punishment we deserve, is death. Totally, Um, totally. And Jesus took it. And so, what does that mean then? So, in, in point number five, you talk about um, the lake of fire is the second death. What, what what does that mean?
1: Well, yeah, that was that was a big thing for me because you know i have read the book of Revelation, you know, probably fifty times, and see the lake of fire there, and it it's so obvious now. But the lake of fire is symbolic as much as anything else in the in the book of Revelation, like. You've got a sword, you've got a guy standing there with a sword coming out of his mouth in Revelation one, and he's got eyes of fire and he's got feet of bronze, and that's representing Jesus. We don't think this literal sword's coming out of his mouth. We you know probably think that's the word of God, and it's all symbolic. He's got seven stars in his hand, which turn out to be the um, the seven messen- uh, seven messengers or the seven angels of the churches. He's walking amongst seven lampstands, so there's symbolism all the way through. The lake of fire is is exactly the same. It's symbolism, which is then interpreted as the second death twice in Revelation 2014 and Revelation 21 verse eight. So once it became clear to me, the lake of fire is just a symbolic picture because it's a vision. The vision is not literal. When you see a lamb and a dragon and stars and lampstands, none of those are literal. The dragon is Satan, the lamb is Jesus, the lampstands are the churches, the lake of fire is the second death. So when you when you realize that's a symbolic picture to, to or an image to portray an idea, which is then clarified by the interpretation of it twice as the second death. That idea that there's a lake of fire you're literally thrown into, which, I mean, if your soul's burning in fire, how does that work if you've got an immaterial soul anyway? So it's like, um, once you realize that's symbolic and it's actually literally the second death, then that harmonizes those symbolic passages with the literal passages of death throughout the rest of Scripture. And the whole of Scripture is then harmonized to death nothing to do with burning forever it's just a symbolic picture so that seems it seems to me pretty pretty clear once we harmonize that
0: that's really important to notice is the the second death and uh what is it uh slightly distracted there just sort of seeing a comment on one of the links i've shared in uh in a facebook group that I'm, okay. I'm told to um based on yeah so sort of 10 reasons why people won't burn in hell forever is a fairly inflammatory uh <laughs> title but uh, i've just been told to read my bible so interesting that that's the response um anyway so um, the second death is really yeah, important it's,
1: it's <laughs> funny
0: man. i'm going through uh, revelation as a study myself on, on the hell project online my website um, it's taken me yeah, ages yeah. to just go through chapter up to chapter two at this point but one thing i've noticed right. in revelation chapter two is in verse Uh, I I don't have it set up on OBS to share my screen at the moment, but in verse, where is it? Uh, Verse 10 of chapter two, it says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation, but be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I find find it fascinating that he doesn't clarify what the second death is in this passage. The clarification for second death, you have to jump forward to, to, well, to connect at least to the lake of fire, you have to jump forward. Now, a a reader of the letter wouldn't know that for the first time. So he's using this phrase, the second death, as though they should know. The, The people reading this letter should know what the second death is well it it's in connection to surviving the first death so there's this pattern um in I and mean, you see it in matthew ten twenty eight, 28 we do not be afraid of the one who yep, can kill right the on. body but can destroy the body and soul there's some aspect of uh we will have to face death in this life but actually there's a death beyond this that will cleanse the world and that is the second death and those who have life in christ who conquer Correct. even and are faithful into death on this side of, the, yeah. of it will then be freed from the death that will destroy everything uh, that doesn't live in christ um totally, I, totally. I, I find second death is the plain meaning lake of fire is the symbol and then john says totally. the lake of fire which is the second death and I find that you yeah, clarify it
1: exactly. That that really helps. You wouldn't you wouldn't clarify the You wouldn't say something like the second death, which is literally the lake of fire, because you wouldn't cl- you wouldn't make stuff, take a clear word and cl- and clarify with an unclear word, because that is the opposite of clarification.
2: Yeah, you
1: would take something that people necessarily know. What does this lake of fire image mean? Okay, we'll clarify. It's the same as every other image in Revelation. You clarify the image with the. What does that mean? What does it mean when we see this lamb standing there? Well, that's Jesus. What do we mean when we see the dragon? Well, that's
2: mm-hmm.
1: Satan. Mm-hmm. It and, and he talks about there in Revelation 2 about life and death. And Jesus you know, Jesus said, you know, you, if, you die, if you die, even though you die, you have life. So there's, it's, it's life and death again right throughout the scripture. It's not burning forever in hell versus heaven even. It's life and death.
0: Yep.
1: So yep. totally, totally, yeah, you clear that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we've got second death, lake of fire. Um, yep. And we'll we'll continue through this. So number six, you've put God's character. Uh, what do you mean by God's character?
1: Yeah, I think I was kind of debating what to write on this one, but in terms of God's character, I'm thinking about it like as, as a punishment. When 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 an authority, even a parent, punishes their child, for example, the the means of their punishment. Uh, or the way that they punish their child necessarily says something about their character. And I know a lot of people downplay this. Um, to me, it's a big one. If I said to you, my children were really naughty today, I chopped off their fingers, you would probably have a kind of a, you probably wouldn't want to talk to me much after this, or you'd be calling the police and say, this guy's a child abuser, because that punishment would be totally, un, um, um, you know, it would be not appropriate in any any circumstance. Or you don't understand the children, they, they messed up the room. It was very serious. So I had to, you know, chop off their fingers so the, the means of punishment necessarily says something about the character of God in terms of the final judgment and I think in terms of death that God is withdrawing his sustaining life that he's graciously given people people can understand if you don't live your life the way God has has given you to live, he has the right as the author of life to take that away from you to, to destroy you but to ongoingly you know to, to torment someone on ongoing forever and ever and ever, it doesn't seem to say much about the character of God. It doesn't seem to serve any purpose other than kind of punitive, vindictive, or sadistic. And either of those options, it doesn't seem to fit the God of the Bible. And that gets into another point. it's not There's no precedent for that through the scripture, and it's totally inconsistent with God's character, which is why I think 99% of Christian pastors never preach on that. They might believe that there's a hell, and they'll say something like eternal separation from God. They'll, they'll water the words that they actually believe down so much because they know that it maligns the character of God to actually say what they believe. God's going to burn people forever in hell. If that's the truth, say it. But it necessarily says something bad, I think, about God's character. And in the heart of people who even believe the traditional doctrine, they know that, so they never say it. Only the sort of the staunch YouTube vigilante sort of Christian, you know, independent Baptist or whatever that have six people in their church and they, they, they you know, homosexuals are going to burn in hell. And we're not afraid to say, you know, these, these kind of people, none of us sort of like, um, they're the only ones actually consistent with their view. The, the Roman Catholic, medieval Roman Catholic church was, they, they tormented people, they tortured them, consistent with the character of God that they believed. Mm. As evangelical Christians, we've got to really stop mm-hmm. this kind of, um, I don't know, this. dual dual picture of God. Mm. On one hand, he's so loving and he's got such easy grace. On the other hand, he's going to torment people forever. It's inconsistent with his character. Mm. He's not not the same. I mean, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. He's the same across the Old Testament, the New Testament and in judgment. He doesn't suddenly change into a monster on judgment Mm day. And I think that torment, a lot of people think, at least, that that's what it makes God look like. And I agree.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it's really important to note that the the verses, there's a tension. God doesn't want people to perish. And you've got verses right. that say as much. But there's also the problem that sin cannot enter his presence. And uh, I was reading even right. just this, yep. this morning, the pa- there's a passage in Exodus around when the, the ten words, the ten commandments as we know them, are given. They're asking Moses make sure that it's you that speaks to us, because if God speaks to us, we're going to die. Uh, There's this understanding that coming into perfect, coming into contact with someone who's perfect, perfect love, it will consume you unless there, there is something changed within you and uh, totally Totally. transformed or, or allowed in. And, and so we've got that throughout the old Testament and uh, God's character is He's perfect, he's just, and he doesn't want people to perish, but it also he's, he's dangerous in the sense that our sin and our corruption will be consumed in his presence. And we need Certainly. to be in Jesus to be able to enter that presence. So I think that there does need to be clarification on the conditionist point because it can sound quite extreme, especially when talking to universalists, that God will just wipe out the rebellious. Um, yeah. But yeah. that clarification is important because even in the universalist sense of the torment that goes on they would say it goes on forever but forever in the sense of jonah 2 where it says the bars of my prison went on forever um Right. right they'll sort of translate from jonah into the new testament but the the torment forever there is the the experience of separation that eventually transforms and restores a person to love God, which I, I find yeah. just as abhorrent in, in all honesty. I find it very strange that uh, a form of torment and torture, even if it's allowing someone to go into their own torment, yeah, it, yeah. Is, is actually a form of abuse to then, it's like Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. It's like, oh, I actually, mean, that's that what bad. God said.
1: He, he didn't want Adam to, to eat from the tree of, of life and live forever in his fallen state. That's exactly why he, what he didn't want. That's why he banished him from the garden. Mm. It was an act of mercy. For Adam to live forever in a fallen, imperfect, corrupted state is not God's intention. It's not mm. his design. It doesn't make him happy, and it doesn't make man happy. So that, that kind of idea thats a long, drawn-out process, you don't find that anywhere in Scripture it doesn't make sense. It's not consistent with God. Mm. I mean, he, he just comes and judges quickly. I mean, every judgment. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira in the mm. New Testament, bam, they were dead. Yeah you got Sodom and Gomorrah, you've got, I don't know, um, the flood.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It wasn't like they were drowning for 68 years and God let them, you know, drown. And finally they all drowned and it's yeah. like, bam. Yep. So it, there's there's no long drawn out process of torment. Gods are a consuming fire, not a mm-hmm. tormenting fire. Yep. So, to,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, well, that goes into number seven. So you, you said it. God, yeah. God is a consuming fire, not a tormenting fire. Um, do, you, do I no, need totally. to expand further on that? Or I think we've kind of covered that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, the Old Testament says again and again, God's a consuming fire. The New Testament Hebrews says mm-hmm. he's a consuming fire. You don't find a tormenting fire. You, I mean, I, I put firewood in the fire. It might last for about an hour, but then it burns up. Everything thrown at the fire burns up um god's a consuming fire that's that's pretty much consistent with the idea of death that he consumes by fire destroys Mm -hmm. um the the i mean the exceptions in scripture would be where believers get thrown into a fire like shadrach meshach and abednego Mm -hmm. and they don't suffer which is a picture of the believer who doesn't suffer at all the final judgment because their name's written in the book of life yeah the believer doesn't suffer the the destroying fire of God or the consuming fire the unbeliever does the people who threw them into the fire died straight away Sodom and Gomorrah was a fire that consumed um and it talks about second peter and it talks about in jude 7 that Sodom and Gomorrah are an example of the eternal fire the eternal fire is just one that destroys completely forever so it's it's God's a consuming fire he's not a tormenting fire and it's pretty pretty clear a consuming fire destroys i mean even wheat and chaff the idea that chaff is thrown into the fire yep Anyone knows the chaff is going to be burnt up. It's not going to burn forever. Yeah. We, it would be a really bad analogy.
0: Absolutely. Well, we looked at Matthew 3, 12 in detail, Darren and I, uh, last week. Yep. Um, and, yeah, just that whole yeah, section well, of yep. clearing out the threshing floor and then burning up the chaff but storing the wheat. It's a picture of completely complete destruction. That, and you look at it in the yeah, Greek. Totally. You look at it in just in plain looking at a fire and, and i've i've seen I and mean, even in suiz lewis he explains that disintegration is like wood in a fire and well let's take that to the logical conclusion wood in a fire will eventually just be ash and the ash won't experience well the wood doesn't experience anything so it's a bit of a bad analogy yeah but yeah, yeah. the the ash will not live on in that state <laughs> it's not living um no, it, exactly. it, it's a bizarre. Idea that it should be, um, so yeah, exactly. I yeah, agree right. over yeah. and over and over again consuming, not tormenting, and those exceptions that you state are, are exceptions that prove the rule, uh, that the righteous will be able to survive because they are held like the, the, uh, in Daniel, it's this the son of the gods is with them, there's a fourth character, so keeping on the safe in that fire. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, mo- moving on to number eight, then.
1: What we got? Yeah, so God's justice will be finally satisfied, fully and finally satisfied. And again, I heard R.C. Sproul saying that God's justice, in a sense, will never be satisfied because the ongoing torment is justified because sin is so grievous against the holy God that it must be punished forever and ever and ever and ever and will never fully be satisfied. That's not very satisfying <laughs> to me, to say God's a God who never fully satisfies justice. Yep. I mean, right throughout the Old Testament, the most two most common words for God is that he's just and righteous.
2: Mm.
1: And we see the justice system is one that provides a penalty so that justice can be met. You never find God uh, metering out justice that never is fully satisfied. I mean, that concept is is bizarre. It's unbiblical. There's no precedent for it. The idea that justice will be satisfied, that everything that's wicked will be destroyed is satisfying because it gives the righteous peace of mind that they'll be able to live forever in peace. And that's the whole point of the whole thing. I mean, yeah, that's yeah. justice is finally satisfied with destruction, not finally satisfied with uh, continual torment, because either the sinner keeps on sinning in hell, which mm-hmm. again, that's not biblical, or their sin is so great. Yeah, I mean, if our sin's so great, how come God forgives us so easily when we just put our faith in Jesus?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah,
1: it doesn't make sense. We we put our faith in Jesus because Jesus paid for our sins. Yeah, yeah. Justice will be finally satisfied. There is no incomplete justice. It's
0: bizarre. I, I find that, and I, I responded to Frank Turk recently uh, on my channel about that because he mentions the same thing as uh, well. Some people will keep on sinning. That sin is a continual thing against God <laughs> and this con- continual disintegration. And I, as you say, I just can't see that in Scripture. I can't see that how how that is just. Um, And if they are to continue sinning, well, why doesn't God just put them out of their misery? If that's your view of hell, God is also merciful. And to allow someone to keep sinning, to keep disintegrating, doesn't sound merciful to me. So if you're going to argue that point where the the cross is where God's justice and mercy meet, that we gain mercy by trusting in Jesus, but justice has been done by the punishment of sin. Well, actually, that, that must still apply to the second death that justice and mercy meet it's going to be just sin will be dealt with but also it won't be a form where it's not merciful it isn't merciful to keep someone in ongoing torment yeah even if it is that's done right. to themselves that's not mercy and and so we've we've got to hold yeah. those two things in in tension and i don't find that the yeah. tradition yeah, does right. that.
1: totally right totally agree with you and if you think that that kind of idea You'd, I'd have a problem with them saying, well, why are the Muslims and Muslim sort of extremists that torture people who Convert from Islam to say Christianity and they put them in mm. a prison and torture them for years Or the communists who did that in the 20th century or the Catholics who did that through the Crusades. What was wrong with that?
2: Mm.
1: If they were they were doing that it would seem to be consistent with their kind of a God that just continually Punishes people on and on and on and on
2: mm.
1: You know torments them because their sins so bad. I mean The fact that as Christians we stand up against any kind of torture or torment or, I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's just bizarre that people can use it as a justification, but that's the lengths that these guys have to go to. And Frank Turek and R.C. Sproul and guys like William Lane Craig are really good apologists and teachers, but the fact that they have to come to these kind of bizarre, weird, unbiblical sort of justifications tells you that the view is bad. It's not that those guys are bad. Mm-hmm. They're great on everything else. It's yeah. just in this in this case, they're blinded by tradition.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think it's the spiritual blindness that they're just not willing to sort of, um, like a lot of people who hold to the theory of evolution, they just, it's mm-hmm. bizarre, but people hold on to that. And it's like, man, just let it go. Just say you're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be easier. Yeah. You know, the Bible's right. We're on we're, we're, we're perfect. You start off with that. It's really easy then just to go, okay, I'll change my mind because I found that God said in his word this, and I'm wrong. There's no torment in the Bible. Let's mm. just forget about it. Justice is always completed in the Bible. That's the concept of justice. Mm. Otherwise, justice is never done. There is no justice. Yeah. You can't say an incomplete justice is any justice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you know. you, you've clearly
0: got a stance on, uh, just just noted there that you've got a stance on evolution. I'm very apathetic either way to it. So that's that's for another conversation. But it, it's. Oh, that's another, that's another conversation. <laughs>
1: yeah. so, I mean, but I, those I, guys would be really staunch yeah. on that. Yeah. Because i would they'd go by what the Bible says. And mm. on this one, they bizarrely yeah, come up with this other kind of, you know, justice is never sa- satisfied or yeah, ongoing absolutely. torment because you keep sinning. Where does that come from?
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that's, it's really important to note that. Uh, and trying to be consistent with with the Bible and and how we handle it, uh, and I, I think I think you've just nailed it with that one that we we need to emphasize. And it connects with number ten, but I won't jump ahead. So maybe I'll save that for number ten. Uh, so number nine,
1: what? Old Testament precedent
0: is death. What
1: what do you mean by that? Yeah, we think about sins in the Old Testament. When Adam sinned, God said, "You will surely die." When they sinned in Genesis six, He said, "The thoughts and intents of man's hearts." were only evil continually. So he brought on a global flood, destroyed the, the world. In Genesis 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah, he saw their, um, you know, their wickedness and their sin. He, he took a lot out of the city and his family and he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah in a day. It was sudden, swift, final destruction. That's the precedent of scripture. The punishment in Israel for sin, death by stoning was always sudden, swift death. You see God sometimes coming down and destroying, I think it was Dathan and Abiram, You see it in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira suddenly struck down in death. If you can find any precedent in Scripture other than death, I'd be interested. And every Scripture that I know is of death, it should be very clear. You don't find any precedent for this eternal ongoing punishment. You find every precedent for a sudden, swift, final destruction.
0: Just to add to that. Yeah, just to, to add the power of that. The only place where you'll find ongoing torment is Revelation fourteen and Revelation twenty in the sense that it's the phrase the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Yes. But even that points back to Isaiah thirty four, where you've got the total Correct. destruction of Edom, where the smoke goes up forever and ever, and the land will have no rest day or night. And and that yeah. Edom isn't experiencing ongoing torment in that place. Correct. It's completely and totally destroyed and if you don't so, and if people don't like going to Isaiah to explain the symbolism in Revelation well you can go to Revelation 19:3 and you've got the angels celebrating the total destruction of Babylon Babylon will be no more the angels then celebrate it by saying the smoke of her goes up forever and ever and and this great, language great. of forever and ever may well mean literally forever and ever but it's quite clearly an idiom or some symbolism to celebrate what you'd say when someone is totally destroyed or something is yeah. totally
1: destroyed. Um, yeah. Someone said like in a fairy tale that, you know, like I'm um, married and they live happily ever after. Mm. We know they didn't live forever after that. Yeah. It's just an expression. And the Bible interprets the Bible. So you can't interpret a symbolic passage in Revelation the way we want to interpret it. Yeah. You have to go to some portion of scripture, as you said, whether it's old Testament or the book itself, they both point to a destruction. Mm. The only interpretation that gives ongoing torment would be a private interpretation of an individual's own mind. And we're told no scripture is one of private interpretation. Yep. So to interpret the Bible apart from the Bible, you're basically saying, I don't need God to interpret it. I'll reinterpret it myself, ignoring what God said it says elsewhere.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's inconsistent. And when people realize that, you've got to be honest then. Do I interpret the way God says elsewhere in the Bible? Or do I interpret it according to my understanding mm. as a 21st century Westerner? That would be very bad yeah. exegesis you know absolutely no one yeah. would go by that except in this case when people are stuck with this traditional teaching again it's just again another point that it's really really bad when you got to take a couple of verses out of context interpret them privately put them back in reinterpret the whole rest of the bible and go there you go yeah eternal torment
0: yeah absolutely <laughs> it doesn't make sense it do- no way. absolutely no. and and so i yeah completely agree the the new testament just really emphasises the New Old Testament as an example and something just recommending anyone who's starting out on this journey to look into what the Bible actually says about hell and God's judgement. There's two things I recommend. First off is ask the question what does God's judgement look like not what does hell look like uh, and then from that what does the whole Bible say so when I'm reading books about the topic I count how many verses i see from the old testament for for the person's perspective and i'm early on i found it, like people that uh celebrate systematic theologies uh so for example wayne grudem that a large proportion of people around me wayne Grudem's systematic theology was the one you'd go to it's accessible it's popular and um it's fairly solid apparently uh, but on this yeah. on this there was mm-hmm hardly any reference to any other verses in the old testament apart from i think ecclesiastes um well wow, yeah wow. so sorry if you can hear some whining there's a car outside my window that seems to be going off hopefully that'll stop in a minute um
1: no uh, it'll die it'll <laughs> die <doia. laughs> it's not going on forever it won't go on forever <laughs> nothing goes on forever except the uh, the righteous yeah and God. that's it
0: <laughs> um so that that lost my train of thought so the it's really important to have a doctrine that goes from Genesis to Revelation as far as possible. Some totally. doctrines are, are hard to, and totally. that's why the doctrine of dualism <laughs> is, I think, a little bit. You, you have to be a bit agnostic about. Uh, I'm, I am dualist, but I'm, I'm that way because partly tradition and things, and there's not much data to work with. But with yeah, this, okay. this is yeah. consistent all the way through. All of the examples totally. in the Old Testament are that the, the judgment yeah. of God is death. And uh, yeah, any language. And even the New
1: Testament, once you understand the New Testament in its correct context, is death as well. So every example of death. Yeah. I mean, God's consistent.
0: Which then points us to number 10. What we got for number 10.
1: So the full restoration of the new creation. So in the new creation, you've got God and you've got the new creation, the new creation being us, the believers in Christ. We're called a new creation. And you've got the new recreated earth, heavens and earth, which we see in Revelation. What is it, 21 and 22? It's a full and final restoration. There's no like this subset of humanity over here, like 95% of them burning in a corner of the universe somewhere. That's That would be a really bad way to restore things. I mean, when God looked on things, when he created things, he said, you know, he created everything in six days. And he said, this is very good. Imagine at the end of judgment, if people are going to be tormented forever, he'd go, this is very good, except for 95% of people over here are tormented forever it's very bad it's terrible and it's going to last forever <laughs> i mean there's no hint that that would be part of god's plan his plan was to create a, an earth with people living on and dwelling in unity with god and perfection and sinlessness and righteousness that's the final restoration that he's going to re-establish otherwise you'd have to ask how come he created it like that in the first place why doesn't he restore it to the way he created it? did he do something wrong in genesis that he doesn't restore it in revelation i mean and people get this idea, like, he made earth and we're living here now, but one day we'll be in heaven on the clouds with harps and, I don't know, angels, and we will be restored to a new perfect earth as it was intended in the original creation. I mean, that's kind of logical and it's consistent, and it's what the Bible says. And so the new creation will be reestablished. There will be no ongoing suffering for people because there's a full restoration. And that's the hope that we have. There's no... You know, then people don't have to worry about their loved one. My, you know, my grandfather who wasn't a Christian burning forever over there. Yeah. I mean, how do you deal with that? I mean, people have bizarre ways of saying, "Well, you'll actually enjoy it then because you know God's righteousness." It's like, well, as a born again Christian, the more and more I think about it, the more and more it appalls me. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: As a non-Christian, I might have thought, "Well, it's my enemy. You know, I don't care. He's burning forever." Yeah. But as a Christian, that doesn't really do it for me. Yeah.
0: And I think some people. I do you think that so I have had pushback on this uh point uh, that someone like Hitler I mean this the standard conversation on the internet that someone will mention Hitler fairly quickly yeah. in the conversation, but that generally comes up yeah. that these awful people that have done horrendous things, killed millions of people, well they get off lightly before they receive at judgment is death. Um what what's your what's your sort of response to that? I've got mine that I'm gonna share in a minute. But yeah, I'm uh,
1: two in two responses. As if Hitler's the average person, firstly.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's like, if you apply it to Hitler, you've got to apply it to Granny Smith, who lives down the road and just never believed in Jesus. You know, she was a nice old lady, baked pie for the local school kids, but um, didn't believe in Jesus. So, whatever you're going to apply to Hitler, you're going to apply to her as well. Mm. So, that's the first point. The, the, the second point is, um, you know, people who say the death penalty is not sufficient, many of them would say the death penalty in this world that we live in now is too too harsh. Fifty you know, we have debates in New Zealand on the death penalty. We don't have it in New Zealand because it's considered too severe. And many Christians, like they're 50-50 on this. It's like 50% say, no, the death penalty is too severe. And yet then when you talk about eternal punishment, they'll go, well, it has to be eternal torment because the death penalty is too lenient. So again, that's an inconsistency in, in the thinking. I mean, is this death penalty too severe or too lenient. Make up your mind and apply it consistently. I don't think the death penalty is too severe. I think God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he destroyed it at the flood. I think the death penalty is appropriate for murderers like uh, Saddam Hussein was was killed. You got people who were, you know, put before a trial for mass murder or whatever, the the right penalty would be death. And that's consistent with the penalty for final judgment. I mean there's no inconsistency when you hold that view if you think like that. But when you say death is too Lenient and yet at the same time those people some of them would say death is too severe on earth It's like well, which is it doesn't make sense. Don't pick out Hitler as a representative because he's an abnormal extreme Think of your average atheist unbeliever Muslim girl who's never heard of Christ or whatever And you've got to apply it consistently to everyone. So death this is cessation of life the withdrawal of life as a punishment It seems just it fits everything so much better
0: I completely agree and uh, I think the aspect of what re- new creation will be, and I think if someone just says that well death, that Hitler gets off easy or anyone gets off easy f- because of death, they haven't understood the hope that we have of new creation. And I think there's a fantastic Amen. way to come to a close on this, on this uh, live stream, Amen. but just a little conversation of new creation. One of the things that... Actually, it was from a traditionist book uh, that I noticed this, but um, there's a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet that I've been meaning to review for ages. I read it last summer. And uh, one of the bits that I thought was really fascinating that pointed out that in the beginning, I'll create the heavens and the earth. There's no realm called hell. There's no... Even Hades no. doesn't get a mention. Sheol comes in later as a sort of very um, sort of symbolic and a poetic idea uh, in genesis from jacob saying he'll go and mourn in sheol over joseph and the yeah. that point of creation the heavens and the earth are what new creation will be and so when we see that in revelation 21 and 22 that everything will be made new this hope is the here and the here and now are sort of broken corrupted glimpses of what we'll have in new creation that these bodies are totally broken and corrupted but we will one day rise anew and be given incorruptible bodies and i'm having to yep. teach other christians so regularly and this is one of the things around my own move to conditionalism was a recognition of new creation hope is just such an amazing hope that we have that our bodies will be made new our our, our spirits if we we are dualist are souls will be given new bodies as they were meant to be and we will enjoy the new creation in a way yeah. that god will dwell with his people and we won't be fearful in the sense of being consumed by him the language no, of totally, genesis totally. won't be necessary god you can speak to us because our bodies have been made new uh yeah. and we don't have this sort of hiddenness aspect of his character because he knows. And one of my favorite verses, actually, just because it makes me laugh, is Exodus 33, where God says to the Israelites, I, I won't come down amongst you because I might consume you, you stiff-necked people. <laughs> and I yeah, think yeah, just yeah. That, that language, it, it makes me laugh a little bit, but it's actually quite serious. We, we can't be in his presence. Yeah, we can't yeah. hear his full voice until we are made new and restored in new creation. yeah. And to have new creation, we can't have some stain called hell with ongoing torment, where people continue sinning. That can't be a part of new creation. And there isn't any scripture to give us a basis of saying, well, it's another realm. And uh, the only other realm that we know of is Hades. That is emptied and thrown into the fire. It's so... There we yeah, go. Heaven picture and, of destruction. There you go. Heaven yeah. and earth are recombined as they were meant to be, and God dwells with the people. And that's that's the hope I have, and that's why I do this channel is because yeah, I
1: want to, to clarify totally, that. Have the hope. totally. So totally. That,
0: that's the ten reasons. Yeah, well,
1: that's that's the hope that I have. That's yeah, the hope that I have is in, you know in the new creation, and we're not going to worry about Hitler when we get. To, I mean, imagine no. you were living in a perfect world with a perfect immortal body with Jesus. You got no troubles. You got no problems. Yep. I mean, heaven will be a long distant memory, you yep. know? I mean, he, he'll be ashes under our feet. He'll yep. be no more. He'll be gone. He'll be... <laughs> yep. That's
2: it.
0: But the knowledge of that beast will no, make heaven right. even more wonderful because they have met justice and mercy. Yeah, that's right. And we have met God and been made whole. Well, what an amazing hope. Uh, and I hope people have enjoyed that list. So just as a as a summary then, um, so we had number one, The word hell is not in the Bible. Number two, the language throughout the Bible is death, destruction and perishing. Number three, humans are mortal, not innately immortal. That to be immortal, you need to be in Jesus. And how do you do that? By finding forgiveness in his death, which is number four. Jesus died for our sins, not torment forever for our sins. Number five, lake of fire is the second death. Second death is plain language for what we would face in the lake of fire, which is a symbol Six, God's character. We don't see God telling us to torment forever and ever. We are actively against torture and torment in this life. And therefore, that is a reflection of God's character in the future. Um, God's character will not be marred by tormenting people. Uh, number seven, God is called a consuming fire, not a tormenting fire. Number eight, God's justice will be completed totally and nine old testament precedent is death so to be able to argue your perspective of any doctrine you should be able to harmonize old and new testament and conditionism does that far better than to the traditional view and then number 10 as we said the full restoration of the heavens and the earth in new creation hope what a great list michael yeah that is a great list and uh i'm glad we we had this conversation
1: yeah, it looks like a pretty good list. I mean, it, it seems to be pretty comprehensive, and I haven't heard any of the, the great traditionalist minds come up with anything that even remotely removes any of those points from the list. Yep. So that gives me comfort, because I don't think I'm more intelligent than them. It must, yep. it must be a, that we're on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, there should be a good argument against.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and so, I've heard Chris they use this argument. I've used it myself. It was the traditional arguments against these sort of points that actually... Pushed me further into realizing that conditionalism harmonized better. Um, so,
1: oh, yeah, way better.
0: Yeah. Uh, do you have any final comments if we start to wrap this up? And I'll go and enjoy the lovely weather that is happening on this Saturday.
1: Yeah. Well, it's it's late over here. It's nearly eleven o'clock at night. <laughs> oh, right. um, re- really enjoyed discussing this, and I hope people they'll you know they'll they'll look into this with an open mind and a humble heart. You know that the only thing that's pure is God's word. That there are issues with translation of words with um, you know, different manuscripts even, with translation, with interpretation, with application. We all have problems with that because we're sinful humans. But God's word is pure. And if you look into it, I think you'll find that this view that we hold is totally biblical. We don't have to juggle things around. So it's not, I mean, people throw out the word heretic quite lightly. I don't even call the people who hold to the view of eternal torment heretics. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally unbiblical, but it's not something you need to throw out, that term. Yeah. A brother in Christ is a brother in Christ, whether they hold that unbiblical, I'd say, mischaracterization of God of eternal tormentor. I'd say it's a really bad view, yeah. but the brothers that hold that, we need to hold them in high, high regard and encourage them to look into this, not not belittle people and say you're heretics just because you've got a wrong view on something. So I hope that, that would be as charitable to us yeah. as we are, hopefully, to them. And as Christians, we can love one another in our disagreements
0: amen yeah that's a fantastic way to end agreed it is a secondary issue but it is an important one and i think those 10 totally. points need uh, a solid response from anyone digging into the bible uh, be they universalist yeah. or traditionalist on this topic so michael i just want to thank totally. you again for your time thank you for uh doing no doing your channel and uh, sharing your videos and i'm sure we'll interact again uh
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. pleasure. I'll uh,
0: close off this conversation. I'll be right with you on the chat in a moment. Um, So thank you. Thank you to those who have been watching. And if you're watching this on uh, after the fact, then please do comment. And if you have resources that you think uh, actually demolished the arguments that we have proposed here, then please do get in touch. We are wanting to present the best arguments from the traditional view and not attack straw men. And we just hope that the traditional camp would do the same, though at the moment, from what we've seen, the arguments aren't that strong. So please do get in touch if you'd like to know more, if you want to know about new creation, if you want to know about uh, how to put your trust in Jesus. All of that is stuff that I'm really passionate about. In fact, I'm setting up a new channel called Critical Witness with a mate of mine that talks a little bit more about everything to do with christianity culture philosophy so if you want to see more than just a discussion about hell uh, then go to that channel and click subscribe and um, that might mean some of the hell project stuff slows down a little bit as i give some attention to that but this is still important to me i think this is good news in on the whole and that we have new creation hope and that sin and death and corruption will be no more in the new creation so on that note My name's Phil Dunkoff, and this is The Hell Project. This is where I defend the view that without Jesus, we are all dead. Thank you so much for watching, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening, and I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, you can do that through uh, Twitter. Or my YouTube channel, but I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehelproject.online. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way, please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a PayPal link. Otherwise, I do this all for free and I hope you found it helpful. God bless you. See you later.